as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here my mate, James Graham, ex-farm boy, ex-cocky slave, ex-station hand, shearer, drover, station storekeeper, city bushman, hawker, battler, commercial traveller, ex-almost-anything-you-can-think-of in Australia, and now settler and road maintenance man on the Yanko irrigation area. James Graham, my mate, hath a long, scraggy neck like myself. Dr. Gregory Bryan just shared a description of Jim Gordon that Henry Lawson included in his 1916 sketch entitled By the Banks of Marambidgee. Dr. Bryan's book, Mates, is about the friendship Henry Lawson and Jim Gordon shared. In this episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we are thrilled to welcome a special guest. Jim Everett is the grandson of Jim Gordon and is here today to talk with us about his grandfather and his grandfather's times with Henry Lawson. Thanks for joining us, Jim. My pleasure, Anne-Marie. Yeah, it's terrific to have you here, Jim. Just before we go any further, I do just want to clarify for our listeners um, that we actually have three Jims to be talking about. Uh, we're talking with Jim Everett uh, and his grand we're talking about his grandfather, Jim Gordon. But Jim Gordon's pen name that he published works under was Jim Graham. So just we'll just try to keep those straight. So we're talking to Jim, who is the grandson of Jim, who wrote under the name of Jim. So good luck with that. But yeah, so Jim <laughs> Gordon is the uh, was one of Henry Lawson's best friends, and he wrote under the pen name Jim Graham. So Jim, I'm wondering it before we get into the thick of things, I'm wondering if you might tell our listeners about your family connection to Henry Lawson. I will. And Henry passed a long time before I was born and my grandfather passed just before I was three. So I've had to pick it, a lot of it up along the way. Uh, but I had the fortune of having a lot of stories from my grandmother uh, and from my aunt who knew Henry when she was a kid. So it's mainly from my grandmother that I have these stories. Henry came to Leeton, and as you probably have read in Greg's book, um, when uh, Jim saw he was coming, he was very anxious to uh, to have it go catching up with his old friend again. And they met, and uh, everything just clicked into place, and the friendship picked up pretty much where it had left off. So Henry became a friend of the family and uh, used to come and visit, used to stay, uh, times when he was trying to escape from Mrs. Byers, his landlady, um, he would come and see Jim. And uh, even in the shed that we had in the second home of Jim Gordon, uh, there was a cupboard that Henry had built uh, that he'd hewed with an axe, an adze and an axe, Henry used to say, apparently, an adze and an axe. And it had the secret compartment in the top, the lid of which was long gone, but that's where Henry used to hide his booze from Mrs. Byers. Uh, so that was in uh, the, the old shed, the old woodshed, uh, or the lumber shed, as it may have been referred to. There's another story attached to that I'll get to later in our, in our talk. Well, thanks, Jim. And so 
you know, for you and the family, what does it mean, you know, to have this uh, connection to such an iconic figure as uh, Henry Lawson? Well, it's interesting because uh, my grandmother, I think, uh, took some of the reflected glory and attributed it to her husband proudly because she was very proud of the work that he did. She didn't like his drinking when Henry influenced him and thought he was not a good influence. But I think in her own way, she was very proud of the, proud of the connection. My aunt, whom Henry adored when he met her as a little child, she was somebody who could uh, cut a man to the ground uh, one look, and that's when she was only three. Uh, so uh, Henry kind of uh, really had an, an attachment to her, but she wasn't, for a while she was friendly with Henry, but in later years she referred to him as that old drunk. So she was a bit of a judgmental person really and not very tolerant. So Henry didn't end up being her favourite favorite person. Um, and that's Bonnie that you're talking about. And Henry wrote about her in a sketch called Bonnie of Our Area. And, yes, and, he, and he certainly had a great uh, tenderness and affection for Bonnie as a child. He did. He did. Um, and uh, I think it's also mentioned in that, uh, that writing how she could really, uh, with one look or one statement, uh, cut, cut a man to the ground. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember uh, reading at one time about, uh, I guess there was a, a, a cart that had bolted and was running down the street and uh, Henry and your grandfather and Bonnie were in the street and Henry desperately grabbed Bonnie and, and placed her over the fence in, you know, so that she was protected from this wild, this runaway cart. And Henry couldn't believe how... Uh, I guess, cavalier or careless uh, Jim had been when in reality there was no danger at all, but Henry was terribly afraid that this horse <laughs> and cart was going to crash into this young girl. So, yeah, Henry certainly uh, loved uh, Bonnie, who, as you say, was, was your auntie. One thing that our listeners don't realise, Jim, is that you now live in America, and so, you know, I don't, I don't suppose you often get the opportunity to, uh, to, to dine out on, on the connection, the family connection to Henry Lawson. Do you ever get the opportunity or do you very often get the opportunity to talk about your family connection to Henry Lawson? Well, I create the opportunity uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I don't mind getting a little reflected glory myself, but it's a way of introducing my grandfather, of whom I'm very proud um, and I talk about his connection with Henry Lawson, whom I refer to as Australia's Mark Twain, and then people in the US get it uh, because he wrote stories and poetry and he was a person of the person of the people. And then people understand it, so I'll go and tell some stories around that. Uh, and uh, sometimes I've borrowed on the writings of, of uh, Greg in his book, picking up information I didn't know because I know how heavily he's researched it. So, yes, I do, I wouldn't say dine out, but I, I am able to get some uh, conversation going around that. You previously mentioned that many of the stories you have acquired over the years are from both Greg's book and from your grandmother. Could you tell us a little bit about when you first learned about the Lawson connection? It would be hard to know when I first learned it because it sort of, it became evident, it just sort of evolved and and flowed out. One of the interesting stories was that uh, Henry was deaf 
uh, and he used to get involved in conversations. And after a few drinks, my grandmother said that he'd get down behind the sofa and press his ear against the piece of wood in the back of the sofa mm-hmm. and then would laugh at what they're saying with a sort of a uh, rather moist laugh through his moustache. That's the way she described it. That is one. And uh, then he'd come and see Jim and stay there when Mrs Byers would throw him out, often screaming after him, poet, you're no poet. I'm the only poet around here. You're just a rhymester. <laughs> and, and just for the benefit of our listeners, Mrs Byers uh, was, uh, Jim, Jim mentioned that that was uh, Henry's landlady. And when, when Henry relocated to the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area in 1915, this woman who, who effectively cared for Henry through much of the last many years of his life, uh, she came with Henry. And so um, she was down in Leeton. And uh, as, as Jim, as Jim Everett said, the relationship wasn't always harmonious. And so sometimes Henry found himself perhaps looking for a little bit of peace and quiet. And he sometimes found that at Jim Gordon's place. And I think there were other things that he was looking for at Jim Gordon's place too, uh, like, for instance, some of this uh, booze that uh, he had stashed around. I get the impression that Mrs Byers, perhaps after living with Henry for a while, was something of a virago, or maybe Harridan would be a better word. It's it's a sort of a, they're neutral, <laughs> maybe not neutral words, but she was not an easy person to get along with. And in her defence too, of course, neither was Henry. And, no, and, uh, he would have been awful to live with. He, uh, I think, would have been very, very difficult. And, you know, we've worked, Anne-Marie and I have recently talked about uh, the breakdown of Henry's marriage. And so, you know, we understand that Henry would have been most challenging. And, you know, even, even in um, thinking about Henry's close relationships with many people over the course of his life, there are very many that he, at one time or another, had had quite a falling out with. And, in fact, sometimes that falling out with some of his male friends became physical. So yeah. his, Henry was known to you know, sort of fall in and out of favour with different people, or I should say different people were known to fall in and out of favour with Henry. From what I can gather, he was very emotionally reactive too. I was recently reading an article or some papers about what are called highly sensitive people or HSPs, and these are people who are very creative, they have no filters, every every sensory input comes in whether it's hearing or sight or uh, emotions or whatever, and sometimes HSPs or highly sensitive persons have trouble dealing with this and they can react quite strongly uh, and often are probably prone to drinking alcohol to, t- to tone things down. And I, I sense that Henry fell into this category. Now, just in, in terms of talking about the volatility of some of Henry's relationships, one of the more remarkable things about the times that Henry and Jim spent together is that they seem not to have those sorts of problems. So there must have been something about their own two characters and how they meshed and perhaps you know Jim's uh, patience and those sorts of things that they did get along very well. I can recall one family story that, Jim, you may not recall off the top of your head, but I remember you telling me about one slight disagreement they had one time when they looked into a paddock and saw a cow. Do you remember yep. that story? Yes, I do. And that was told to me by my grandmother. And, and how did that go, Jim? 
Well, they were going out in the sulky, which in the US is a buggy, going out in the sulky to the river, which is where they went for respite, and there was some grazing cattle there. And there was one cat, uh, one closer one, and I forget, don't know who said it, but one of the two said, oh, look at that cow over there. And the other one said, no, it's a bull. And the first one said, look, let's just move on. There's too much arguing around here. And, and as far as I can tell, that's the only hint of any sort of discord between these two uh, wonderful yep. mates. So now your grandfather, he, he wrote quite a bit about his, uh, about his mate, Henry Lawson. And one of the pieces that he wrote, one of the poems that he wrote, was entitled, When Lawson Walked With Me. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that poem, Jim? I think he was, uh, he was given to sentimentality. Um, and he and I find that in myself. I often see characteristics in myself that my grandfather had, and I'll tell you one in a little bit. But to that extent, I feel as if I, I wouldn't say channel my grandfather, but understand where he's coming from. And uh, one is to get overly sentimental about the past and things that you didn't necessarily appreciate at the time suddenly become very emotionally precious. And the times that uh, Henry walked with him were back what I think 20 years between when they did stuff together out around Burke and when Lawson came to Leeton. So there was a special period of time for nostalgia to set in and, and be uh, perhaps made more beautiful or enhanced. And as a result of that, that would pr produce a poem like When Lawson Walked With Me. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, that's probably something that I should remind our listeners of too. You know this, this uh, the the two time, the two main times that uh, Henry and Jim were were uh, together was when they were in Burke and back of Burke in eighteen ninety two and eighteen ninety three, and then when Henry relocated to Leeton and to his great delight discovered that uh, Jim was living there, uh, so that was nineteen fifteen nineteen sixteen. So there had been this long interval in between, but as Jim said earlier on, they were able to pick up almost exactly where they'd left off and just continue this great friendship that had been established when they were very young men. Yeah, so just looking at the poem here, some of the things, as we passed by a little church with glints within the door where people sat with bowing heads and some knelt to the floor, uh, talking about things that they'd done together. His mood then changed to cheerfulness. He gripped my fingers tight and told me of the plans he'd made, of books he'd meant to write. The road, snow white beneath our feet, was fringed with palm and tree. The stars have never seen so bright since Lawson walked with me. Yeah, I love that part, actually. The stars have never seemed so bright since Lawson walked with me. Yeah, and it goes on, you know, in lots of places, talks about just how much Henry still at this stage, you know, at this stage it turns out that Henry only has another six years to live. But in mm -hmm. that poem, especially that part that you just read about the books he planned to write, Henry still was very much looking forward to continuing to make um, this, you know, these great contributions to Australian literature. And I think he was uh, determined at this particular time to sort of re-establish himself at sort of the top of the tree in terms of mm -hmm. liter literary significance in Australia. And well, from what I read in your book, he was very ambitious, particularly driven by his mother and by Mary Gilmore with his ambitions. Uh, but unfortunately, his drinking got in the way or his it, not just his drinking, but his, I wouldn't say lack of self-confidence, but there's something about 
is turbulence within uh, and quieting that, that down with alcohol, which doesn't really help. Um, the other thing, talking about his plans, I jumped ahead to uh, the poet's coat and he describes it in great detail as if Lawson is still using it. Uh, he talks about the pockets and what he found in the pockets and that's a tangible memento of the past and it's a physical relic of his friendship with Lawson. So people's clothing is, is, has a habit of doing that because part of when you see a person, it's the, the clothing that they wear and you can almost imagine filling in their faces and their hands and things. So that was a very Jim's tendency to look backwards and be nostalgic was prompted by this the poet's coat. Yeah, so the, so Henry Lawson's coat, uh, Jim had mm. possession of. In that poem, Henry, uh, Jim, your grandfather, Jim Graham, had said, and he was a sick and broken man. It was then that he wore it last. So I said, or we said, about you know these ambitions that Henry Lawson still maintained or retained, but as Jim said, he was at this stage drawing closer um, to his to his death just uh, half a dozen years later. And Jim, I'm wondering when Henry Lawson died, your grandfather wrote a poem called "The Bush Mourns." Mm-hmm. Can you share your reaction to that poem? The first thing I th- I thought about that or noted about that, Anne Marie, was uh, Jim had this practice of referring to things collectively and also with with trees as first per in the first person like oh. tale of an old gum tree i've waited and watched for a hundred years my limbs are twisted and bent in the case of this one the bush mourns he was using the the word the bush as a collective term for all the people and the life and the the life of the bush uh, and it wasn't just the people in the bush who were mourning it was actually the bush itself so that one the the bush mourned that he saw himself as being integral to the bush and lawson not Quite as much, I think that he Lawson treasured the emotional connection that Jim had with the natural world. And one of the uh, lines, or one of the uh, parts of that particular poem that I find very powerful, is when uh, when Jim is talking about when he first learned about Henry's death, and Jim wrote, "When sharp and clear the message came, twas like a knife thrust to the bone." So that's how how mm. physically harmed or hurt Jim felt when he first learned uh, of the death of his mate. Uh, yes. It cut like a, a knife thrust to the bone. Yes. Now, of course, Jim, you know, he wrote several poems about to his relationship with Henry Lawson, but uh, indeed Henry uh, Jim wrote much more than just that, and indeed Henry and Jim were both famous writers, so it wasn't just Henry Lawson. Uh, During his lifetime, Jim Graham was certainly a very popular and highly regarded author, and he published extensively in many of the same outlets that uh, Henry Lawson used, including, of course, the Bulletin. So what can you tell us, Jim, about uh, your grandfather's writing career generally? I've thought a lot about this. And obviously you've researched it and have a lot of uh, details to hand that I've picked up through reading reading your materials. Uh, but I don't think Jim was driven uh, commercially like Henry was. Henry, I think, was commercially driven partly by his mother's fairly aggressive approach towards publishing and success. So maybe he had imbued that, had imbued him with his, his success 
uh, or motivation. But I don't know if it is entirely him, and maybe when he got together with Jim, he could re be relieved of that pressure for a while. One of the things that I would say in response to what you've already said, Jim, about Jim perhaps not being commercially driven, uh, Henry used to advise Jim on his own writing career, on Jim's writing career. Mm -hmm. And one of the pieces of advice that he gave to Jim was that he should send his best stuff, as Henry wrote about it, send your best stuff to the bulletin and then, you know, effectively if the bulletin rejects it, well then, you know, send it out to another another outlet and if they reject it, well then send it on to somebody else. So that was uh, Henry's advice to Jim was do the best that you can and send it to the bulletin and if they decide no, well then go somewhere else. And Henry also advocated to uh, George Robertson at Angus and Robertson advocated on Jim's behalf to uh, to publish a collection of Jim's works. Now, nothing ever came of that. Jim actually ended up uh, publishing elsewhere, but uh, certainly Henry was actively pushing forward Jim's name to, have, to enjoy some of these, I guess, commercial rewards for his uh, really high-quality writing, writing that uh, Henry indeed felt compared very favor favorably with his own, and in fact, he felt, Henry felt, that in terms of their bush writing, that Jim's was much better. So in regard to that, uh, I don't think Jim was motivated by success or money. He wanted to be a farmer, from what I can gather. Uh, he, liked, he liked his farm and he liked his family. His writing was kind of a cathartic, cathartic thing for him, just getting stuff out. And once he'd written it, it was done. There's a lot of artists like that. Once they finish their painting, they lose interest in it. It's the process of doing it that was important to him. And money, his view of money was one of the statements that he made to my grandmother uh, towards the end of his life. He said, on my grave, I want you to put, he died as he lived, in debt. And she said, that's nonsense. We're not in debt. She got angry with him. But he died as he lived, in debt. And there's a little bit of mortal and self-sentiment going through there, I think. <laughs> but uh, that sort of indicates the kind of person that Jim was. He loved to write and he'd wake, my grandmother would say he'd wake up in the middle of the night, I don't know whether they had a kerosene lamp or what, but he put the light on and he'd scrawl a few notes and then go back to sleep. Where It would come to him during the night. He was just like an artist who'd have to go down to the studio and slap, put a few more daubs of paint on the, on the picture. Not necessarily to sell it, just because he loved doing it. One of the difficulties in tracing the works of Jim Graham is that he uh, used a number of pen names, so it wasn't just Gr uh, Jim Graham, and so we really can't be sure just how much he did uh, he did publish. But he wasn't, uh, I guess, desirous for this fame and acclaim that may have come had he just published under the name Jim Gordon or just stuck with the one pen name Jim Graham. Well, I, I understand that, and I don't know whether it's because that's what I was told about my grandfather or whether I've inherited a lot from him because, as I've mentioned to you, I do a lot of photography. I'm a passionate photographer, and I'm really trying to up my craft at the moment, and I'm not exactly motivated by selling my work. It's nice when I do, but it's more about just completing it and having it there for myself to look at. And to that extent... I think Jim wasn't wasn't motivated by money or fame or success. He just needed to do it. Yeah. Now, Jim certainly, uh, despite that lack of motivation for that sort of a claim, 
he certainly was recognised and applauded for what he did do and, and indeed was fated in his uh, Leeton community where he was living and indeed even today. So um, what are we, about 70 plus years since he passed away, uh, he's still being honoured. And mm -hmm. indeed my book uh, is just one of the ways that he's being honoured. But you recently informed me, Jim, that he's going to be celebrated again next year. So can you talk about the original Leeton celebration at the Roxy Theatre and then what you know of the uh, plans for a similar type of celebration next year? Sure. My knowledge of the plans are somewhat tenuous. I've spoken to some of the people who are organising it. It's in November next year. Uh, it's going to be held at the Roxy Theatre, which is an Art Deco, one of the registered Art Deco cinemas in the state. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And back in 1947, I believe it was. Which I think uh, was two years before your grandfather passed away. Is that correct? <coughs> yes. Yeah. And 1947, uh, and a year after I was born, the, uh, the town got together and it was led by Lee Marchant. Lee Marchant was very much an entrepreneurial person who wanted to do the best for Jim, but not necessarily unselfishly. I mean, he got a bit of glory out of it as well. I mean, he's like an entrepreneur. He, he wanted to, to be the producer of this, but there's nothing wrong with that. But Jim, I think, was a little bit reluctant and he, I think he was a shy person and wasn't quite sure how to handle all this, these accolades and attention and fame. But uh, Lee Martin, Marchant pushed this and some of the Australia's best songwriters and uh, people who put down music, put, the, put his poetry to, to music and there were choirs that sang it. The Prime Minister had been invited, but he said, I can't come along because Parliament's in session. Uh, and uh, I think he sent a representative along. Uh, he also, I think Tom Much, who was the Minister for Education at the time, wanted to come along, but because Parliament was in session, he couldn't do that. So it was it was quite a big event, and there's a lot of press coverage, uh, and it was something that was a you know became a legend in its own town uh, in certain circles. And uh, there was a the standing room only. There was people lined up outside trying to get in. It was that popular. That kind of gives a feel of, of what it was like. I mean, I wasn't there. I was only one. <laughs> And I, was, I stayed home. No, it certainly must have been quite the night and, and a wonderful tribute to your grandfather. And so it really is fantastic to think that they're um, having somewhat of a similar, or the plans at this stage are for somewhat of a similar celebration of your grandfather next year. So again, uh, more than 70 years after he passed away. So I mean, it really does show what a uh, respected uh, and celebrity figure Jim Graham or Jim Gordon was during his yes. lifetime. I'm curious. Actually, I have a, a question and, and an observation. I'll start with my observation. I'm a Canadian and so newly introduced to the work of your grandfather. But even in just quickly uh, discussing the poet's code or the bush mourns, there is this uh, appreciation for metaphor and figurative devices in mm -hmm. the work of your grandfather. And yes. I see this reflected in both your speech, the way you seem to see the world in, in this conversation, and even in the email communication that we've been passing back and forth. And it's so delightful because I was introduced to your grandfather through Greg's book, but I see 
Jim Gordon in the way you speak and the way you yeah. see the world. So <laughs> it's just a delight to see that. And, and in getting to talk to you, I too am getting to know your grandfather better, not just by what you're saying, but how you're saying it. It is so neat to see. So that's my comment. Do you want to? Yes, 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 yes. And thank you for raising it. It's prompted something else. My grandmother used to tell me, and this is part of my idea of Jim being an HSP, they have no filters of things coming in. Things bother them a lot. And she said, Jim would, you know, would be down in, uh, down in the paddock or uh, pasture um, and uh, a song would come on the radio and a song that he'd hate and he'd come charging down to the house, into the room and switch it off. He was so angry about this song that he hated. And one time he did it and then he realised rather sheepishly that it had been on the neighbour's radio. <laughs> and one of the things that he did, and I've only realised this recently, is when there was a song that he hated, he would sing it, furi sing it furiously with as much contempt as he could put it as if he's trying to exercise this song from his very being. I do that. I understand it. Interesting. And uh, one other question. As I've been been introduced to Lawson's writing and now your grandfather's writing, it seems that some aspect of mateship is the idea of shared suffering mm -hmm. or shared hardship. And I, I'm just wondering, was there any of that shared suffering or shared hardship between your grandfather and Lawson? And if not, okay, but what, what could you just tell us a little bit more about this relationship or any other stories that you that stand out to you? Well, the thing that comes to mind is the walks they did together as swagmen, looking for food, looking for work, uh, and you know, the shoes being worn out and being uncomfortable. And I think, uh, Greg, you could attest to the fact that walking hundreds of miles in searing heat is not something you'd do just for pleasure. Uh, so, uh, yes, that, that was the thing they shared together. And uh, I think when Henry was living in Leeton, um, when Jim saw Henry was getting down, uh, then he would take him out to the river. And the, the, the Murrumbidgee River and the, the riparian areas there and the beaches uh, have a special mystical quality and the Aboriginal people knew that. They, they regarded it as somewhat sacred. Uh, going down there with, they, it's got a high canopy uh, with all the eucalypt trees or gum trees as they're called. Uh, and in the, those areas are sulphur-crested cockatoos and they all gather up in the top and they, their cries echo through the forests. And down at the, at the level, bottom level, all the, the litter from the trees is decaying and there's this smell of dust and, and the eucalypt oil. And it's very magical. It has a kind of a healing quality. One of the things about the river too is that it's, it's been formed by many years of, of widespread flooding so that the whole area is somewhat alluvial, which goes back to Jim's first experience when he came to Leeton to try and set up a farm, some of the areas of the alluvial soil were three feet deep. Some of the areas were six inches deep. The first farm he got had six inches of soil and then the rest was clay and nobody grow anything there. Uh, but then in the second uh, house that he got, which is the one that I grew up in, had a, probably about two, two or three feet of alluvial soil and it's rich, it's brown, it smelled beautiful when you pick it up and crumble it between your hands and things would just grow in it. So I think the luck of the draw affected what Jim's life became there and the, that's why the area is now the irrigation area because the soil was so rich and produces beautiful wines and all kinds of fruits and things. 
And uh, as you'd know from uh, Greg's book, uh, Jim Gordon was a, an irrigation inspector, which is an honorary title, but basically something to, to allow him to get paid for trotting around in his sulky horse and stopping in the shade and writing some poetry and wiping <laughs> his pipe and making a few reports about trees because he loved trees. Uh, our, the farmhouse that we had there had so many trees they had to be thinned out. You need plant a huge gum tree, another one six feet away. That was uh, why the, the river was so special and like the tail of an old gum tree. I love how you talk about it even in our email correspondence of the river you say this was a silent but living character in the story of Jim and Henry's relationship. That's so beautifully said. Thank you. And I think a few aspects of it that for me, it was like that. My dad used to take me fishing there at times and that that kind of remains with me. The quality of the water and the sand. Yeah, it's a very special place. And one of the poems that Jim wrote uh, was entitled Lawson's Tree, and it was the tree where the two would often go camping together by the Murrumbidgee. Did anyone show you that tree? Yes, yeah, I was taken there, yeah. Was it near the bridge crossing the river? The road the road does go over a small bridge, yeah. So I think that's probably it. It's, it's quite near the water, it's very gnarled, and uh, it has a, a lot of branches that go out sideways rather than being a vertical tree. And then another thing that you just made mention of, Jim, was the dreaded clay band that uh, Henry wrote about and Jim wrote about. And another person who wrote about it after she come she came to visit was Mary Gilmore. Now, mm-hmm. perhaps you could also uh, talk to us about your family connection to Mary Gilmore, the one-time romantic interest of Henry Lawson. And later on... Uh, Anne-Marie and I have recently talked in an episode about Mary Gilmore being in London with uh, Henry and Bertha. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so can you talk to us about your connection with Mary Gilmore? Well, I had the opportunity to meet Mary one time. Uh, I didn't know who she was, and I must have been about eight or something at the time. My grandmother, who remained friends with Mary and did some administrative work with organising a few things when Mary was living in Narandra, which was 18 miles from Leeton, that um, I had the chance to meet her. And ironically, where she lived uh, was in a Sydney's equivalent of Soho, as it used to be. It was a very, it was used to be a bohemian area where a lot of poets and writers and artists would live. And it was a delightful little curved road and there's some interesting houses there. But then it became very seedy. Uh, and there was a lot of criminal activity there, prostitution, uh, and it really went into a, a seedy area. Uh, but uh, Mary lived there when it was a writer's area and uh, lived upstairs above the above King's Cross. And uh, I visited there, visited her with my grandmother. And I remember her saying, well, James Gordon Everett, let's go and get some ice cream. So we went downstairs, went to the shop across the road, got a packet of Peter's ice cream with the folded cardboard thing. I can remember the, the ice cream. And uh, I talked with Mary and I thought she was a wonderful person. So that's all I, re- all I remember, <laughs> the, the ice cream and where she lived. Well, it's a, it's a great memory from your boyhood. Now, I've but run- I haven't, did I ever share with you the letter that I got or my grandmother got from Mary uh, about some administrative things and about just you know, how are you doing and mentioning my name? And she said, and how is young James Gordon Everett? She said, <laughs> uh, that man, what did she say? One day that man will be a, a, an editor or a politician. I was, I was neither, and I carried that kind of thing 
that I was sort of trying to live up to that. that I never became a politician. I didn't have political skills. And an editor, I I became a person who taught management. Uh, so in some ways, I I used my skills in that area, but it wasn't what Mary had in mind. Now, I imagine that um, Mary Gilmore's autograph was one of those that was in your mother's uh, autograph book. I believe she collected many uh, autographs from famous Australian literary figures. She did. Uh, the paper that a lot of writers used, the newspaper that a lot of writers uh, used, was called The Bulletin. Uh, and The Bulletin was uh, a somewhat left-leaning uh, publication. And the editor of the, the Bulletin's editor, one of the editors, maybe the chief editor, was a family friend, Walter Jago. Uh, and uh, he was Uncle Walter to my mother, and she used to go and visit there, and she'd sit in the waiting room whilst all these famous people would pass through the waiting room, and, oh, would, would you sign my autograph book, please? She was about 10 or something like that, and she was a sweet little thing. And, of course, they, some of them, uh, the famous ones, like um, the author of um, Fatty Finn, whom you may remember, did, did a, a lot of them did their own drawing and their own painting for, for him, uh, quite elaborate paintings. Did I ever send you the set of those? No, I don't believe so. I will. All the autographs that you collected, and some of them very well known. Uh, Sid, Sid Nichols was the Fatty Finn author. Um, she got Stan Cross's autograph, who did Dad and Dave, and uh, Pixie O'Harris, who did a lot of illustration of uh, ethereal fairies and elves and things like that. Uh, so there's a lot more, and I'll, I can send them to you. I think you'll find them fascinating. But she, she, she just sat there and she collected these autographs hand-drawn autographs in, with beautiful watercolours and wash, etc. that they did just for her. And you, um, met, you mentioned uh, Walter Jago, and, and so to bring back a, another connection to Henry Lawson, uh, of course, Walter Jago was the partner to Henry Lawson's daughter. Mm -hmm. and, and if I'm not mistaken, at one point, Walter Jago made a rather lengthy walk to Leeton to visit with your grandfather. Yes, I'm, I'm not familiar from that, apart from reading your book. That wasn't one of the things that emerged in my childhood. And, and so um, uh, Henry's, Henry's daughter, at that particular time, I believe that Walter Jago had arrived quite ill, uh, as well as I imagine, you know, sore in the feet, etc. But I actually think that he was ill. And I remember mm -hmm. a letter that, uh, that Barter had written to your grandmother expressing her uh, thanks for how well they looked after Walter Jago when he arrived in Leeton. Mm. So, yeah, so, so that, certainly... you explain the, the closeness of Walter Jago and how his name came up a lot in conversation. Yeah, so certainly there was this great uh, connection or these great connections, plural, that your family had through uh, Jim, Jim Gordon um, with many of the important uh, literary figures. Uh, mm. And indeed, getting uh, further to this uh, Walter Jago figure, uh, after Henry died, Walter Jago wrote of your grandfather sort of inheriting the, the position as the, uh, you know, the, um, I guess, the advocate for mateship, the, the, the new apostle, the new disciple for mateship uh, in mm -hmm. the, now that Henry had passed away. So he certainly had a very high regard for Jim and for, you know, this, this, these ideals of mateship that Jim uh, demonstrated. 
when you mentioned the word ideal, I think that Henry and Jim uh, both were men of the people, I guess, and they loved the outback and they loved the people, but they had different takes. I think Henry was probably more influ influenced by um, Mary Gilmore's more socialist perspective, and he saw things at the macro level with the societal connections, etc., and the uh, maybe the unfairness of the the ruling class over the the uh, the workers, etc. That was, uh, I think, Mary's strong position that workers' rights and not exactly egalitarianism, but uh, fairness in all things. Whereas Jim didn't make such judgments. He just saw people as people. Uh, he didn't see the the enemy as the farm owners and the rich um, station owners. Uh, he just saw them as people that needed to treat other people very well. That's that's what I get from, re from growing up and reading what you wrote about their different positions. So they, they had a common, over, had an overlapping set of values, but they were... One was micro perspective, the other one was macro perspective. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think of it in that way. Yeah. Now we've talked some, Jim, about uh, about your grandfather's writing about Henry Lawson, but as I said, I mean he wrote lots of things about lots of things. So as a descendant of of Jim Gordon or Jim Graham, to use his pen name, do you have a favourite Jim Graham work that you'd uh, care to talk about? Well, the one I grew up with. And the answer is yes and no. The one I grew up with was A Tale of an Old Gum Tree uh, because I, I read it a lot and it was, my, I guess, my childhood favourite and had been in the school magazine. But since you and I have been working together, I've gone back and started rereading a lot of his work and I think a lot of it I would not have been able to appreciate the depth of understanding of the human character and the lifestyles of the time as I do now and I've many years under my belt since I was at school and first started reading that. So the, the tale of the old gum tree is one that it, it only struck me a few years back that he, he wrote it in the first person. I've waited and watched for 100 years. My limbs are twisted and bent. And it goes on like that. And he talks about the, the talks about trees as people. And when he's talking about them, talking about friends and even their gender uh, of the trees. So that's what I've taken from there. But as I've gone back and read a lot of things, there's a lot of wealth of material about lives back at the time, the lives of men, the lives of women, which are often very separate and very different lives at the time, very harsh lives. Um, and I know that my grandmother's told me stories of when they they came from Burke down to Leeton uh, with a horse, a big horse and cart uh, loaded with all their stuff. Uh, and they set, first settled in Leeton. Their first house was made with uh, that four-inch diameter saplings um, and corrugated iron and burlap or hessian, and that was their first house. In some ways, uh, Jim Graham lives on because he had a favourite writing desk, which is in some of the pictures of him sitting writing. Uh, I think it might be oak. I'm not sure what it is, but it's an old desk. That was my desk when I went to, all through school and I'd write on it and I'd feel good about it. Uh, and uh, he will call his, kept his letters and his works in that. And when I moved to the US, um, I actually gave that to my daughter to be the steward of that desk, that family heirloom, and she adores it. She's so proud of it, even though she does put a, a MacBook sitting on there, it looks a bit out of place. Uh, uh, a fountain pen would be more appropriate, but she does that and she feels really connected with her great-grandfather, as does her daughter, uh, who is very creative, 
My daughter is very creative, so the creativity thread runs through the family. There's a photograph in my book, Mates, of Jim at that desk, if, if indeed that is the same desk. And one of the interesting things about that photograph is that there is a, a photograph of the statue of Henry Lawson. Yes, so in that photograph that you're holding up, there's a photograph there of Henry Lawson's statue in the domain area in Sydney. So I think that that's interesting <laughs> as well that as, as you know this is many years after henry died at jim's desk he did retain this photograph of henry lawson yes so where I mean, is that where you mentioned your daughter has it where is that uh that desk now is it in, where whereabouts is it in leeton or no no that's in sydney in sydney yeah uh, that's, that's a fantastic uh, heirloom you know that connection to your grandfather and and through that the connection to henry lawson in the poem, the men that understood, shed hand, jackaroo, boss and teamster, they are all the men that can understand, self-taught scholars and baffled dreamers, bronze barge, bronze barge hands of river steamers, they are the men I love to heed me, let furious critics reprimand, they are the men that clothe and feed me and I'll sing the tune that their ears demand. In other words, I'll write what these people want because that's where I get paid and I really understand them. And they understand me in the poem called The Men That Understand. Yeah, that's what, just one of uh, many uh, fantastic works by Jim Graham. And I, I rather suspect that the vast majority of our listeners will previously not be aware of Henry Lawson's friend Jim Graham and the fact that he was such a, a talented writer. And so I certainly encourage our listeners not just to, to continue to enjoy the work of Henry Lawson, but also spend a little bit of time looking up some of the work of Jim Graham as well, because in lots of places it's very th uh, similar in theme. And as I said earlier, uh, it is actually the bush writing in particular. Henry did consider it to be superior to his own. So, Jim, I just want to thank you for sharing some inside stories about your grandfather's construction, as you called it, of both life and the literature that uh, he saw within it. In doing so, you've constructed a fuller version of your grandfather for me. And so I could talk to you forever, but I think that's about all the time we have for today. So thank you very much for joining us. And we really, really appreciate it. And just before we conclude, we'd like to thank John Sherman for allowing us to use musical excerpts from his Lawson album. Also, please tell others about uh, the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast and encourage them to subscribe. We're going to have a bonus episode connected to this one as well. Jim, Jim Everett, a couple of years ago uh, made a recording. It's, I think it's about 10 or 12 minutes in duration, which was he prepared for the Leeton Museum talking about uh, Jim Graham in particular. And so Jim Everett has agreed to allow us to, uh, to add that to our podcast. And so that will be a bonus episode um, that people can find out a little bit more about Jim Graham and Leeton and the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area um, from that uh, bonus episode. So thank you for that, Jim. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, I was writing that while I was going through a little bit of a health crisis and uh, I was typing it on my side. Uh, so it was a, a labour of love, but not, not a very comfortable one. But I put it, what I realised is just how much work, Greg, 
you put into your research and with the uh, the book that you produced, with the uh, what is 450 pages, it's a very heavy tome, but it's fascinating reading. And anyone who has an interest in history of Australia and literature in Australia uh, would well get that and just find themselves glued to reading through it. Well, thank you. And Leighton as well. Leighton is very strongly featured. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, Jim. And Leighton is a uh, fascinating place, and I'm looking forward to returning there. And as I'd mentioned to you in an email, one of the places that I'll be visiting is the grave of your grandfather there in Leighton. Well, say hello from me. I will do that. Little, little tell him little Jimmy said hello. <laughs> can I can I just ask one question? Sure. One more question before we go. It, the first time you read Greg's book, what was your reaction to reading someone else write about such an important figure in your life and one you knew in a way that nobody else did? Well, I read it as if Greg had actually been there and, and thought, wow, did you, did you observe these events? And he's got a way of weaving interpolations of events into the, the known fact. You've got fact here and there's a fact there. In fact, there and he, he interpolates between them and adds a little conversational tone, which is probably pretty close to what happened, but it really brings it to life. And I found that very, very val valuable, and it is very emotionally uplifting, uh, although a little, little uh, troubling because it became so real to me uh, that I found it quite an emotional experience. And even now, reading my grandfather's poetry, I will admit, uh, in my latter years, I'm prone to becoming emotional. Yeah, I could understand reading this book as the grandson of Jim Gordon being very emotional. I'm reading my grandfather's poetry again with a different set of eyes, thanks to you, Greg, that I really, with all the research that I did, or everything that I read in your book, um, and really formed a picture of, of sort of phantoms of events that I'd never really known. Uh, and your words brought to life the entire existence of my grandfather and it's very emotional reading through it because uh, I'd known him until I was just under three and then he passed away. Um, so I didn't really get to know him. But uh, I feel now that I, I do know him. I feel a lot more connected with him. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. Uh, thank you for mentioning that, actually. That's uh, really nice feedback to hear. And um, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that you shared those stories with us today. It was well, delightful. Please, please Thank you. And that meant a lot to me. And I, I you know, love sharing what, li what little experience I had and the chance that I had to meet him and what I put together from the other members of the family. Thank you very much. Next week on our episode, uh, we are going to be talking about Leeton and the time that Henry Lawson lived there alongside his mate, Jim Graham or Jim Gordon. We look forward to you joining us then. Thank you. I remember, oh man, I remember The tracks that we followed to clear The jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, oh man, I remember the tracks that we followed are clear 